Hi. How are you? I can't believe how big she's getting. Um, well, my name is, is Jim Murphy, and I am uh, one of the uh, elders and pastors at Missio Church uh, that meets downtown. Uh, I know a lot of you, many of you uh, I have yet to meet, but we, uh, on behalf of the leadership of Renovation, are, are really grateful that everybody's here. We know there's lots of other places that you could be. We know there's lots of other things that you could be doing, and the fact that you're here, we're just, we're just really thankful and we're really grateful, and we hope uh, that what goes on here, uh, that the, the heart of our mission statement uh, here at Missio and, and here at Renovation is lived out, that God uh, would be glorified by what's done here. Um, my wife and I uh, just yesterday uh, ran the zombie run here in Liverpool, and uh, we went, it was awesome. So we show up, and I've got to admit, I've not really run many races in my life. I've run a couple, and so thinking about this zombie run, I'm a little nervous because there's running through mud and muck and climbing walls and climbing in tunnels with mud in them, and you're being chased, and you're wearing these flags, and you don't want to get your flags pulled. Uh, so it's a high-stress environment, and, but my wife and I didn't argue once, so I'm learning we have a strong marriage if you take the world race you know, for that TV show or the Amazing Race or whatever. But as I'm, as I'm looking at all these people from all these different places, a lot of them were from the Liverpool area, and here's the thought that came to my mind. How are these people going to be reached? There's a segment of people that went to this particular race. As you can imagine, there weren't a lot of Christians at the event. And I'm just sitting there looking around going, every man, every woman, every child. Every man, every woman, every child. Who's going to reach these people? And then, and then I began to think how grateful for the fact that Renovation Church is here, that Calvary Chapel is here, that there are other bodies of Christ that, that, that are in these northern suburbs that God in his goodness has planted here, has established here in this geography, not so that they would exist for themselves, but that, so they, they would exist for the 80-some thousand people that live around these places, and that would reach into places like, of all places, the zombie run for the glory of God. And that, and that what's going on here at Renovation, please don't miss this. And I'm not trying to make, I'm, I really think this is an accurate description without any overstatement at all, which I'm prone to overstatement if you know me at all. But you're a part of a grand movement of God that began 2,000 years ago that is bearing fruit still to this day all around the world. You are a part of God's plan. You are a part of God's plan globally. You are a part of God's plan nationally. And you are a part of God's plan in Onondaga County and, and, and in the Syracuse area. Whatever God is going to do in the world, He's going to do through His people, the church, and so you have direct ties to the revival that's going on in Cuba right now where thousands of people are embracing Jesus right now. There's a, there, it's sweeping through the island of Cuba like a wildfire. Jordan, one of the elders at, at Missio Church, just got back from India. It is amazing what God is doing in that nation. And you guys are a part of that. And God has said, I'm placing you in these northern suburbs for my glory to, 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 make, to call a, a people for myself that belong to me that I can release back out into these places where you live, where you work, where you attend school, the neighbors you live with, to be a part of declaring my goodness and my salvation to them. So please don't think that you're not a part of something significant. You are a part of something incredibly significant. And that is awesome when you put it in that context. And so today, as we, uh, as we continue through uh, the book of Acts, which you've uh, been going through a couple of weeks now, we're going to look at Acts 3 and a part uh, of, of how God was moving through his church at the beginning, uh, through uh, the apostles and through people that have been touched and changed by the gospel. And our hope and our prayer is, is that as we look at this, we can learn some things uh, not only about the greatness of Jesus, because that's what we, we want to lift high, the name of Jesus. But we also learn about what does God want to do with me right now, in this place, to share the story of grace. 
So I know Matt did, but I would love to pray before we dig in to the Word of God. So let's take a moment and let's pray together. Father, we, we, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and God, we thank you for that privilege. And uh, Lord, I pray that as we open up your Word, God, I pray that, that, that you would shape us. I pray, God, that, that your Spirit would teach us. I pray that, that we would see uh, with greater clarity just the depth and riches of Jesus, the power of his gospel message, and that, God, you would move each and every one of us in this room closer to your heart. So, Father, we give you this time, and we pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. So I'm going to read out of Acts chapter 3, and I'm going to start in verse, uh, verse 8, I'm, so, I'm sorry, verse 7. Uh, of Acts chapter 3, and I'm going to read through Acts 4, and I want to apologize, uh, it's not up there. Um, so if you have your Bibles or smartphone or iPad, those are all equally valid. Uh, let's turn there, and this is the word of the Lord. And he, meaning Peter, took the beggar by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them, to the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you, now, or whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. And when he had decided to release him, but you, uh, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you, now, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also the, your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the peoples who have spoken from Samuel to those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men who came uh, and, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So think about this for a minute. Last week, we looked at how this beggar was healed, this lame beggar. Imagine every day of that man's life. He goes to this beautiful gate and begs. 
day after day after day. People forget about this man, and at the very most, they'll, they'll, they'll flip him something as they're on their way to prayers. This, this man is meaningless. Peter and John walk in, and th- through their faith in Christ, this man is healed. And something remarkable happens because of what Jesus does in this common, ordinary, low position, ignored, forgotten man. And it has remarkable consequences and fruit. It says that when he was made strong, he was leaping and he stood and began to walk and he entered the temple praising God and all the people saw it. They recognized who it was. They were filled with wonder and amazement that they run to go see Peter and John and to see this man. And you can almost imagine this forgotten man who's used to just begging. Now he's the center of attention. What happened? What's going on? Why are you leaping and praising God? What's with the change? I just saw this guy 10 minutes ago. Just like I have every day of my life, I've seen this man. And he's been nothing to me. And now all of a sudden, here here he is, the center of attention. He's clinging to Peter and John. Like, I don't know what to do. And Peter stands up and recognizes the opportunity that God has given through the changed life of an ordinary man. And what we see is in these first two verses is that a life changed by Jesus and demonstrated for others to see will bring about the opportunity to proclaim God's story of grace. It will happen. Many of us feel as if our stories don't matter. Many of us feel like, well, I don't have that great of a grace story, or how, how will you, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to say. But if you've fallen in love with Jesus, if he's really changed your life, as you begin to live this out for the world to see, one of the things that we'll talk about in the My Circle training is what it means to be salt and light in the presence of people. And this man exhibits what it means to be salt and light. This isn't a theologian. This is a common man that Jesus has touched his life through his people. And all he can think to do is stand up and rejoice and praise God for what has happened in his life. If you have been saved by Jesus, you have had a miracle happen. So many of us think that, man, what a great miracle. I don't have a story like that. But the reality is, even the healing of this man is just a shadow of the power and grace of Jesus demonstrated in the gospel as he moves a life from death to life, from wrath to grace. And if you are in his church, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ and you have access to the Father. You have a hope that is secure. You have a love that will never perish, spoil, or fade that will love you to the end of your life and beyond. We as a church have much to rejoice over in the midst of a world that does not know real joy, that does not know real life change. This is why Jesus says, do not put your light under a bushel. Do not hide it for others to see. Be unrestrained in the joy of your God who has lavished his grace on you. As as Ephesians chapter 1 says, that this grace has been lavished. When you think of lavishing, I think of what Aiden does. when he, My son Aiden, when he's trying to put French dressing on something, he takes the bottle and he just turns it completely upside down and it all goes... And it just, like, the half of the bottle falls for, like, three carrots. He's a dipper like his father. It's like, dude, you don't need that much. (laughs) God is reckless with his grace on you. There is much to rejoice. And it's so saddening to me when I see the people of God feel like they live these mundane, melancholy, I don't have that much to say life. Friends, if I can please submit to you, The church are really the only people in the world that have something to say. And that life, that life changed by Jesus, demonstrated for others to see, will bring about, not might bring about, it will bring about opportunity. 
How do I reach my neighbors? How do I reach my coworkers? How do I reach my family that I love? Demonstrate the joy of the gospel in their midst, and it will provide opportunity for you to begin to talk about it. And we see this displayed here. And what I love about this is not just that this man's life, but Peter recognizes it. Peter, whose own life has been changed by the gospel, also recognizes that people aren't necessarily, at this moment, flocking to see Peter and John. They're, walking, they're, they're, they're flocking to see this man that, oh, you guys healed this man? And Peter recognizes, man, people are coming for, because they see a change in this guy. We had a part to play in that, so I'm going to speak up because of, what this, because of what's happened for this guy. Have you ever been in those situations where you've talked to someone and they're pointing about someone else? Man, that so-and-so's life is different. So-and-so, that, that's an opportunity to begin to proclaim the story of grace, not just through what he's done in your life, but through what he's done in each one of your lives. That you can stand up and recognize that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is displayed. And so I can point to other parts of the church and go, like, like the Ardner family, you don't know this, but I have talked much about how God has worked his grace in your life. As you've clung to the cross of Christ, as you've lived differently in the midst of tragedy and hardship, the people scratch their heads going, what's going on over there? Let's talk about what's going on over there. Because a life changed by Jesus and demonstrated for others to see will bring about the opportunity to proclaim God's story of grace. We should live with our eyes open to see when God gives those opportunities to tell why our lives or someone else's life is different. This is what's happening here. And when Peter saw it, he addresses the people, and I love what his first words are. Men of Israel, why do you, why, why do you wonder at this? Why do you think we had anything to do with this? Our role is to take no credit for God's changed lives, for our own or for someone else's. We are to use those opportunities to tell the story of Jesus. If someone says to you, you're so nice, you're so gracious, you're so helpful, you're so kind, man, thank you for being such a, man, man thank you for being nice to, my, to, 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 to the people, whatever it looks like. Whenever people give you a compliment for your, Sweet disposition. It is so easy in that moment to just go, you know, thanks, I appreciate it. And then they walk away going, man, that's a nice person. When they should walk away with, I'm not nice at all. The only reason why you see anything good in me is because of Jesus. Now I know what you're thinking. Well, that might be weird. Okay, it might be weird. If you don't, you know, I mean, I don't know, at some point we need to recognize that, you know what, we're going to have to be a little bit different. Instead of saying, thanks for the compliment, begin to say in a way that is fitting with your personality, you know what, thanks, for, I, I appreciate the compliment, but the only thing I can give credit to is Jesus. You may be thinking to yourself, I don't know how to say that. Just say it. <laughs> And then what we see is, as Peter then begins to walk through his gospel presentation, after he says, you know, why do you look at us as though we did anything, as though by our own poverty or piety, piety we have made him walk? And then he begins to tell them about who made this man walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead, and to this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see now. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. What I love what Peter does here is he doesn't mince words. Peter, number one, says, we take no credit. 
and he begins to boldly proclaim Jesus. As we live our changed life, demonstrated for others to see, as God brings about those opportunities to proclaim the story of grace, it is so important that we proclaim Jesus and not a vague spiritual truth in order to make it more seeker-friendly. Peter goes right to the heart of it. He is very specific about what God he is talking about and how God has glorified Jesus. He is speaking primarily to a Jewish audience. And he is looking at that Jewish audience as he's on this big overhang on the east side of the temple, this big gathering space. And he says, it's the God of Abraham. It's the God of Isaac. It's the God of Jacob. It's the God of our fathers. This God, Yahweh, has glorified Jesus. And he is the one that made him well. We live in a culture that loves to be very unspecific. The, word, the name God is all over the place. Watch the, watch the you know, American Music Awards. We've got athletes that point to the sky. God is cool. Jesus is a whole nother story. When people talk about God, it's like, what God are you talking about? Peter makes no mistake about what God he is talking about. People couldn't walk away going, Man, was he talking about a Roman God? No, no. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus. And throughout this sermon, not only is he very specific about the God that you worship, the God that made you, the God that's over everything, has glorified his servant, Jesus. And what he does in this sermon is he lives high the name of Jesus and he uses very specific and significant words to describe who Jesus is so that there is no mistake. I'm talking about the God that you know, and this God that you know has raised up Jesus, and he is God's servant. He is, holy and, he is the holy and righteous one. He is the author of life. He is God's Christ, and he is the prophet after Moses. We could preach for weeks just on each one of those titles he uses. But do you see the richness of the language? He's not using Jesus as your buddy language. He's not using Jesus as your homeboy. He's not using the culturally sensitive Jesus. He's using the real Jesus. The one that is God's servant. That they have denied. And he boldly proclaims in the midst of this their rejection of this Jesus. In other words, he describes their sin. Look at what he says. He's glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. And you'd rather have a murderer released to you than the holy and righteous one. And you killed the author of life. So what does that mean for us today? It means that we, in order to have meaningful conversation with people, as we point them very specifically to Jesus, the Son of God, that we are also not afraid to engage people about our desperate need because we are all sinful. We have all rejected Jesus. I've never understood how we give a gospel message without sin. How we give a gospel message that said, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. If things aren't going well, embrace Jesus and everything will get better. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that God is the holy, righteous one who loves you, who cares for you, who sent his son to die for you because we're hopeless apart from his activity and his action. Whatever you're going through in your life, no matter how young or how old, Jesus is the one who can come in and move you from death to life. They weren't the only ones that killed the author of life. We killed the author of life because our sin put him there. We have rejected him. All the people around us think, you know, have rejected him. And in that rejection of Christ, we have chosen our own path. Man, you know, we, we, we are walking a perilous journey that says, I don't need you. I'm not saying we browbeat people. But I'm saying it's engaging in meaningful conversation to recognize 
Yes, we're sinners. People will ask me as I begin to share Christ with them, do you believe, do you, you don't believe man is inherently good? Here's my answer to that in the midst of conversation. No, I don't believe that. I'm not going to backpedal. I'm not going to sidestep. I'm not going to try to make that more palatable. I'm not going to try to come up with a neat little answer that makes them feel better so the conversation can continue. I'm going to be honest. I'll follow that up with, and oh, by the, I don't believe I'm inherently good. This isn't just a, I don't believe people are inherently good. I don't think I am. Because I know me. I'm kind of a jerk. And I love how Peter lifts high God. He's very specific. He uses these rich words to describe the glory of Jesus and who he is. And he's not afraid to talk about the elephant in the room. So much so, can you imagine the boldness of Peter to look at the very crowd that shouted for his crucifixion? That he stands up boldly, knowing his life is in danger. And he says, the Christ that you killed. Holy smokes. That's remarkable. Could it not be, what if we as the church began to flip the, the, the thought in our mind that engaging someone about sin really isn't condemning at all, but rather it's looking at someone who's sitting in a burning building going, the, bur the building is burning. As a, It's really a declaration of love. Because if I just walk by that, I'm not a, I don't love people. If I let them burn in the house because I don't want to interrupt their football game, I don't love them. It's like when I'm at Chipotle, which is one of the, my favorite restaurants, but yet I get something stuck in my teeth at Chipotle. And if you ever eat with Jordan, if you know Jordan, he's one of our elders, he'll look at you and go, dude, you got to go take care of that. <laughs> like you got a whole salad in the left corner of your tooth. <laughs> And then you walk into the mirror and you're like, oh man, yeah, I got a whole, I got a whole patch of cabbage right there. And he'll look at you and he'll say, I tell you because I love you. And it's like, you know what? You do. Because otherwise I'd be walking around all day going, hey, how are you? No matter what I'm telling you, all you see is cabbage. Just chilling right there. Hey, how are you? <laughs> he loves me. Can we also love people? See, I think sometimes what happens when we engage in, in, in the discussion around our depravity is that we can, we, we can either inadvertently or intentionally begin to take a pious position. And so we speak to them from a position of authority and a position of, of I'm above you and I've been made righteous and you're a sinner. But rather than just having a conversation as one who's been redeemed and found the solution and found freedom from your sin to be able to engage in that and go, can we see the depth of our desperation? Can we see the depth of our situation before a holy, righteous God and his great love with which he has loved us in spite of it? That's a very different conversation that does still get at the same things. Peter boldly proclaims their rejection of him. And then you get to verse 15. Well, starting in 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life when God raised from the, uh, whom God raised from the dead. And to this we are witnesses the Jesus who is the author of life, the one whom God has glorified, that was rejected and now die, and died, now lives. And he is the one who works in our lives. This is good news to proclaim. See, first of all, we cannot have a gospel message unless we talk about the death and the resurrection of Christ. And how Peter specifically begins to talk about this God, this Jesus, and he died and was raised from the grave. I love how you see this. He walks through God, humanity, and now Jesus. And he boldly tells them, this one that you thought was dead, this one that you thought was gone away, this one that you thought you'd never see again, 
has risen from the grave. And this Jesus that God has glorified has changed this life. And there's nothing you can do to take that away. There is nothing you can do to speak against it because this man was once this way and now he is this way. Jesus is alive. The grave is indeed empty. I almost look at it this way. In our culture, we dismiss Jesus. We may like him as a teacher, but at the end of the day, we don't really, as a culture, wrestle with the ramifications of his resurrection. You have to really, you, you can't dismiss someone that's alive. Right? Like, we can talk about Abraham Lincoln, and we can talk about all these historical figures, but at the end of the day, they don't really, I don't have to deal with Abraham Lincoln. He's a good guy to know about, but he doesn't really do anything for me. The resurrected Jesus, who died for our sin, and who rose again, who is alive, that's a God, that's a, per, that, that's a person, that's someone we have to deal with. You cannot dismiss Jesus. And we are still witnesses of this truth. Peter says of this, we're witnesses that he rose, that he died and rose again. And we are still witnesses to this truth. If he has saved you, you are a witness to the resurrection of Christ. The church is a visible demonstration that Jesus is real and that he is alive, that he is active, and that he is someone that does not stand aloof. He is not just a, a teacher that we put in the annals of human history. He is the one who human history rests upon. He proclaims his death and his resurrection so that he cannot be dismissed. And Peter declares that it is only by placing faith in this Jesus alone that that has what has led to the life change. Look at what it says. And in his name, what it means to put, your, put faith in his name, he's using these attributes of, G, of, of Jesus. He's the holy and righteous one. He is the God's servant. He is his Christ. He, he uses all these things. To put, and to embrace someone's name is to embrace their entire being. It's to embrace who they are. And Peter is unequivocally saying, he is God. And so to embrace his name is to embrace everything about him. And when you embrace everything about him, that has what's given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. By embracing this Jesus, this has what has given me hope. This has what has given me freedom. This is what I, how I found grace. This is how my past no longer defines me. This is why in the midst of the deepest, darkest possible circumstances, I have a hope that I cling to that is this bright, shining light that governs my entire life because Jesus is alive. And it is only by placing faith in His name, in who He is, that I am able to have any joy or any meaning at all. It is all about Jesus. And God writes this grace story in the presence of other people in order to use that life to point people to himself. You see, the beggar's healing was put in the context of a grand purpose. The gospel is imminently personal. There's a great dichotomy that happens here. Or maybe, maybe not dichotomy is not the right word. There, there's a great context to each one of our salvations. The first is, yes, it is personal. Jesus knows your name. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows the numbers of breaths you will take in your life. He knows what your last day is. He sees your first and your last. last. Where can you go from his presence? You can go nowhere. He knows everything about you. And, you, and when he redeems you, he brings you back into relationship with himself. And you have access to the almighty God. And then you also begin to represent him in the world. Because your story, although personal, was never meant to be private. 
Your story, although personal, is also in the context of the body of Christ, which is His church that He has left in the world for a purpose. And so when God saves this beggar, when He, when he, um, when he heals him and He stands up and He begins to proclaim this goodness in the temple, God is saying, I'm using this man, yes, I'm going to change his life, but I'm also looking at how God will use that life for my glory to reach thousands of people. Who would have ever thought that this forgotten beggar that every once in a while would get a pittance from people would be the catalyst for which 5,000 people come to Christ? That is remarkable that his one life is a, is a stone in the grand mosaic of human history that God is painting, that is lifting high the name of Jesus Christ. And each one of our lives plays a story in that. The purpose of healing this beggar was to declare the glory of God to those around him. The nature of the church is that it is a people saved by grace. It is a people marked by peace with God and with others. And it is a people whose identity is they belong to God's family. They are citizens in his kingdom. That we begin to look like Jesus as we're patterned after the truth. And that we are his temple. We are his body here on earth. And that each one of your grace stories, each one of your lives, God says, yes, I'm redeeming you. And it's between you and I. But at the same time, I'm using you where you live, where you work, who you hang around, what you do, your neighbors, everything that you do. I'm writing my grace story on the canvas of time to declare the glory and greatness of Jesus. Don't have a limited view of yourself. Well, wow, that's in a, that, that in isolation is a dangerous statement. <laughs> Holy cow, let's rewind that. <laughs> Don't have a limited view of what God can do through your redeemed life. And when the gospel is presented, it must be presented in such a way that it points people to Jesus and to, a, and to what a biblical response to that message should be. Look at, what, look at what Peter does. Verse 17, And now, brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as also did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer has thus been fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. See, Peter gives this, this message. He talks about God. He talks about how God has glorified Jesus. He talks about their sin and their rejection of him. And then he talks about how it's by faith in his name that this man has been made well. And then he doesn't just give a transfer of knowledge and a transfer of information and then just leave it sitting there. He leads them to a place of knowing what to do with that knowledge. Repent. Repent with your life. You cannot just dismiss this. You must make a decision about what you have heard. Peter does not present the gospel as mere information, but he pointed out the glory of Jesus that they should repent. And then he begins to tell them that when you repent, when you begin to embrace Christ, he tells us that their sins will be forgiven. He points out what the biblical response should be and then also leads them to the glorious truth of what it means to embrace him. Your sins are blotted out. You who rejected Christ, who wanted a murderer over the glory of the holy spotless one, can have your sins blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from his presence in the weary world in which you live, times of refreshing will come. 
and that there is a great hope for those who have been saved. There is great hope in embracing the gospel. Each one of his statements are incredibly rich, and they also they not only point to what can happen now, but they also point to future hope of when Christ returns that all things will be set right, that this blessed hope of Christ coming back to us is yours if you embrace Him. It's, it's funny how when we begin to share Christ with people, that we'll engage them in conversation and we'll begin to talk a little bit about Jesus and a little bit about this and a little bit about that, and then we'll just leave it sit there as if they're supposed to know what to do with it. When in the gospel we see very clearly that the presenter always tells you what to do with it. Jesus, Mark chapter 1, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. In Acts chapter 2, Peter gives his message and they say, what shall we do? I love that. I've never had an audience do that. That would be awesome. But he tells them what to do. Here, he tells them what to do. See, this was a, a shift for me because for so long I would look at the gospel and I would hear this. I think I, I would hear this in places that I would go and then I, and then I would also do this. That I would look at the call of the gospel as a plea. Please accept him. Please, please, don't you see there's life here? Please, 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 please. When in reality, it's the command from our gracious Lord. Jesus isn't begging anyone. He is the Lord of all, is the holy righteous one in His grace and in His mercy. Graciously commands, repent, believe. I'll often feel as if I'm not the one with any authoritative thing in that moment. When that's true, I don't have any authority on my own, but when we stand on the Word of God, we know what the biblical response to the gospel is. Repent and believe. And in the midst of that, Peter also connects the gospel to the larger story of God's promise to redeem a people back to himself. He talks about in verse 17 that I know you acted in ignorance. I know you didn't understand. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that the Christ would suffer, he fulfilled. He begins to talk about Moses. And then he begins to talk about Samuel. He begins to talk about the larger framework of the scriptures that informs his conversation for what he's doing. There's so much that could be said here. But for the, but for the sake of time, the thing that we must, that, that I think is a key principle to pull out of this is that we must have a working knowledge of the Scriptures if we're going to faithfully and meaningfully point people to him. Don't try to share the gospel apart from the Bible. I know that sounds weird, but it happens all the time. And you see Peter standing for his audience who knew the Old Testament. Begins to speak. Remember Moses? Remember Samuel? Look, it's all pointed to Jesus. And then what we see in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 4, that, that we see this amazing reaction take place. That as they were speaking that the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, and I love this, they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in, the, in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested him and put him in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many who had heard the word believed, and the number of men who came was about 5,000. Sharing Christ will invoke a reaction. Sharing Jesus Christ with someone will invoke a reaction. Positively and negatively. Here's the thing. We must not be governed by the fear of a negative reaction. A huge percentage of Christians do not share their faith because they are fearful for how it is going to be responded to. Here's what I see here. Peter was not a failure because the 
because there was a segment of people that wanted to hurt him. The word did what it was supposed to do. And on the other side of this rejection of the message, you have others that embrace the message. The reaction, though, happened. The word did what it was supposed to do. Leaders were annoyed and arrested Peter and John. 5,000 placed their faith in Christ. I have been in situations where you begin to share the word, and I'm going to share more about this next Tuesday. This is all a prequel because we're going to begin to unpack these things over the next two weeks as we walk through my circle. And I hope you don't look at it as, man, I get to have a night off. I hope that you don't. But that we come together and take our time to look at what it means for each one of us to be on mission with Jesus here. And that we wrestle through this together. But I've been in situations where I've seen the Word of God literally do this. Half were this way, half were this way. And I was sitting there going, huh. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so here's what I would ask you to consider. Consider your grace story. Are you walking in the joy of your salvation? Can you liken yourself to this beggar whose life had been radically changed that he couldn't contain the joy that Jesus has deposited in his heart? And that this joy, this childlike awe was displayed for all to see. Here's what I don't want you to hear. If you're an introvert, that you have to become an extrovert. That the way you show praise is that you have to jump up and leap. Here's what I am saying. In regards to who you are, however you exude joy and happiness and wonder, do you live in that joy because your God has saved you? Do you see the larger context of your salvation? That He has written that grace story and has put you in the midst of people that need hope. And you may wonder, I wish someone would do something at my workplace. I wish someone would reach my neighbors. I wish someone would reach that guy that I go to the gym with or that girl that I go to the gym with. I wish, I wish, I wish. And God says, I've moved you from death to life. I've left you in the middle of those people. I have done something. I died on a cross. I rose again. I deposited my spirit inside of you, and I've placed you in the midst of them. And oh, by the way, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And is the primary motivation of your life to proclaim Jesus giving people an opportunity to respond to his offer of grace. Well, I'm not an evangelist. We're going to talk about that the next couple of weeks. Here's the deal. The word evangelism is not listed anywhere in the scriptures as a spiritual gift. Evangelists are. Evangelism is an activity that God has empowered all of Christ's people to be his witnesses to do. And God has given us a, a sphere of influence with particular people that look different. I mean, he took you all the way to White Sands, New Mexico. It's awesome. I'm never going to get there, I don't think. And you may also say, well, isn't that a little extreme? The primary motivation of my life is to proclaim Jesus? What about being a father? Your primary motivation for your kids to proclaim Jesus to your kids. Well, I want to be a good husband. Your primary motivation in being a good husband or a wife is to help proclaim Jesus to your spouse. Our primary motivation, our primary love is our, as we begin to grow more and more, we're going to take baby steps in this, is that we want to proclaim Jesus. Nothing else. Nothing else. Nothing else. 
So I want to challenge you to reflect on these three questions as we prepare to walk through my circle together as this church is being planted here in the Liverpool area as God is weaving His grace story in and through your life. Because God takes this seriously. We celebrate communion at Missio and here at Renovation every week because we never want us to wander far from the cross of Jesus. That we look that, that this God who, who loved the world so much that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Our God was on a mission and continues to be on a mission as He lifts high the name of Jesus. And we tether ourselves because it is not our own effort that made ourselves the, 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 with this hope. It is the blood and body of Jesus. And so when we come up and we celebrate communion here in just a few minutes, consider the great lengths to which Jesus went to reach down to save your soul. Consider the great lengths that he went to write this story of grace in your life. And come forward with awe and joy. That we have a meal to celebrate that is a flag in the ground that says, my sin is forgiven. That we remember his body beaten for us and given up for us. And he gave us the bread to say, eat this and remember that I did this for you. That when we dip it in the juice and we feel that in our mouth, that we remember the shed blood of Christ that washed away our sin that times of refreshing may come from His presence. So we eat this meal with humble thankfulness and to remember that our lives are anchored to something. Let's pray. Father, we come to You in the name of Your Son and God, we thank you that there is good news to tell. We thank you that there is something to be joyful about. We thank you that there, is, uh, that there is hope to be found. And Father, we do remember your death and your resurrection. And we remember your love. And Father, I pray that as we walk forward, we would remember as we're taking communion together the incredible grace story that you have written in this body collectively and that we remember the grace story that you've written in our hearts personally. And may we live it with joy so that the world may know who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you're